Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold the peter schiff show a federal judge in the state of texas has just ruled that the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, is unconstitutional, and therefore the law would be null and void. It would be struck down. Of course, uh, this will be the subject of appeal, and so whether or not this decision is going to hold is still an open question. But if you listen to the way it's being reported in the media, the reaction from a lot of the people Uh, In Congress, particularly the Democrats, they're accusing this judge of just being partisan, being a judicial activist, that this is a ridiculous, crazy decision, and that it's clearly going to be overturned. And all this is a bunch of nonsense. I mean, the judge in this case is completely correct. Obamacare is unconstitutional. In fact, it was unconstitutional before this decision. I mean, I don't care that the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of Obamacare. The Supreme Court was wrong just because five justices believed that it was constitutional doesn't mean it is. Remember, there were four justices who believed and ruled that Obamacare was unconstitutional. So are those justices wrong and are the other five right? Not necessarily, right? You just have five justices that got it wrong and four that got it right. But unfortunately, the the number of justices who got it wrong outnumbered, at least back then, the number of justices who got it right. But I agree with the dissent. The Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional for all sorts of reasons. In fact, this particular judge simply focused on 
you know, one aspect of it. Uh, but there are so many more. I mean, this law is so unconstitutional, it's, it's absurd. I mean, there's nothing about it that would pass constitutional muster. But what I want to do for the purpose of this podcast is kind of focus on the, the rationale behind this ruling and why I believe that the decision is valid and, in fact, may, in fact, stand up under appeal, especially given the new makeup of the Supreme Court, because uh, clearly the, the justices uh, that believed it was unconstitutional still do, and some of the new justices that are now there could easily side with that dissent to form a new majority to uphold this lower court ruling or to now get a fresh look at the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act now that the law itself has actually been changed based on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, or whatever we called it, uh, which uh, is the basis of this particular decision. And I'm going to remind everybody, and I did a podcast about this as soon as the Supreme Court ruled on it, and so you could go back and listen to that one. But I want to remind everybody who may not have been listening to my podcast that many years ago, uh, the basis under which uh, the law was held to be constitutional. And of course, that basis was a bunch of nonsense. But the initial argument centered around whether or not the U.S. government could require American citizens to purchase health insurance. Now, the theory was that, well, they had the right to do this under what is now known as the Commerce Clause, or what has been known as the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. And probably the Commerce Clause has probably been one of the single most misunderstood uh, clauses, which has enabled the government to get away with all sorts of things that the Constitution does not authorize them to do. Now, the Commerce Clause can be found in Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, which is where all the powers to the federal government are delegated. And one of the powers uh, that they have is to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. That's it. That is the Commerce Clause. Now, based on that clause, you have had Supreme Courts validate government regulation of companies because the government claims that since those companies engage in interstate commerce, that it falls within that power, that Congress can regulate these companies because the companies engaged in commerce. Now, of course, that's not what it says. The Constitution doesn't say the government has the right to regulate companies that engage in interstate commerce. It just says they can regulate the commerce itself, not the companies. The commerce has to do with the flow of goods and services over state borders. This is what they're talking about, not the individual companies. So that is wrong. That is an unconstitutional expansion of federal power. The federal government does not have the constitutional authority to regulate businesses simply because those businesses happen to engage in interstate commerce. But that was even the camel's nose under the tent because then it got worse. Because then what happened is companies that were getting regulated, right, that didn't do any interstate commerce were saying, oh, you, you know, this law doesn't apply to me because I don't, you know, I don't engage in interstate commerce. All my commerce takes place within one state. And then the Supreme Court said that the federal government under the Commerce Clause 
can regulate companies even that don't engage in interstate commerce if they can show that those companies somehow affect interstate commerce, even though they themselves don't participate in it, which was a complete stretch, but the Supreme Court allowed that. And so now, basically, under the Commerce Clause, the government is regulating any business it wants for whatever reason it wants, completely outside of its constitutional authority. But here, when we got to the Affordable Care Act, here was a new thing that government was going to try to justify under the Commerce Clause. They were going to try to regulate people who were not engaging in any commerce and forcing them to engage in commerce, right? Because if I don't have health insurance and the government says you must go out and buy it, the government is actually mandating that somebody engage in commerce when they're not engaging in any commerce at all. Now, that's a stretch beyond which the Supreme Court, to its limited credit, was not going to make. And in fact, if you read the decision that validated uh, Obamacare, the court agreed that there is nothing in Article 1, Section 8, there's nothing in the Commerce Clause that gives the federal government the power to force people to engage in commerce. So if there actually was a requirement that you buy health insurance, the Supreme Court said it's unconstitutional. Well, then if that's the case, why did they rule Obamacare constitutional? The reason is they said it was constitutional as a tax, that it wasn't a requirement to buy health insurance. It was simply a tax. And here, I think the Supreme Court was wrong. And and I'll explain why. But first of all, why did they rule it was a tax? A lot of people don't understand this. So the way the the, uh, original act was worded, you had a choice. You can pay this tax, which is the shared responsibility tax. You can pay this tax, but if you didn't want to pay the tax, you can go out and buy health insurance. So it was a tax, but they gave you a way out if you didn't want to pay it. You could buy health insurance, and then they would they would forgive the tax. So in other words, the Supreme Court said, this is a tax. Nobody is required to pay, buy health insurance. They can just pay the tax, and they don't have to buy health insurance. And the reason that they said it's a tax and not a requirement was because they pointed out correctly that the penalty, the tax, was so low that it wouldn't actually compel anybody to buy insurance. So basically, the Supreme Court said it's a tax because it's not going to work. Because remember, the whole purpose of Obamacare was to force everybody to buy insurance because they wanted to eliminate the ability of insurance companies to discriminate based on pre-existing conditions. Well, you can only do that if there's a law that forces healthy people to buy insurance. Because if insurance companies can't discriminate, then no healthy person is going to buy the coverage. They're going to wait until they get sick. But if only sick people buy health insurance, it doesn't work. So the whole purpose of the Affordable Care Act was to force everybody by law to buy insurance. Because Before the Affordable Care Act, what forced people to buy insurance was the knowledge that if they waited till they got sick, they couldn't do it because the insurance company wouldn't sell them the policy. But once the government makes it illegal and they require insurance companies to sell insurance to sick people, well, now there's no more uh, natural market-based incentive to buy insurance. So it was replaced with a government mandate. Now you got to buy insurance. So that, that, that is how it worked. And the Supreme Court basically said, 
this penalty is so low that it's not going to work. And so since it's so low and it's not going to work, it's just a tax. And therefore, Congress has the right to tax. And so we're going to uphold the individual mandate because it's not really a mandate. It's a tax. Right. And so that was the basis for the constitutionality. Now, I would say that's bogus because you have to look to the intent of the legislation, because if Congress does not have the authority to force people to do something, then they can't find a roundabout way of doing it by labeling it a tax, because taxes have to be levied according to the Constitution. And Article 1, Section 8 defines the way taxes have to be levied to be constitutional. It says Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. That's it. That's why taxes can be levied. And they can't levy a tax for any other purpose because there is no constitutional basis for a tax that doesn't fall into one of those three categories. Now, clearly, it has nothing to do uh, with uh, paying the debts of the United States. It's not for the common defense, and it's not for the general welfare. Now, this general welfare clause is, again, like the Commerce Clause, another aspect of the Constitution that has been so distorted. Because to hear uh, a lot of the activist judges and a lot, you know, people on the left that try to maintain that the general welfare means that Congress can do whatever they want as long as it's for the general welfare of the United States. Now, first of all, the general welfare is up for interpretation. I mean, I think that Obamacare undermines the general welfare of the United States. But clearly, there are congressmen who voted for the Affordable Care Act who are of the false opinion that it is for the general welfare because they think it's good and therefore they think they can do it. But that's not what it means, right? It doesn't mean that government can do whatever it wants provided it believes it's for the general welfare. Because if that were true, if the government could do whatever it wants, well, then it would be all powerful. And it's clearly not all powerful. The Constitution was written to create a limited federal government with few and defined powers. Now, how do we know this? We know this for a number of reasons, uh, but one of which is that the people who wrote the Constitution, the authors of the Constitution, the people who ratified it, explained it to us. You have the Federalist Papers. Uh, you have the Elliott Debates. You can read what was written about the Constitution and what it means by the guys who wrote it and ratified it. And they say that. But also, if you look at Article 1, Section 8 itself, right, it says Congress will have the power to lay and collect taxes, to provide for the common defense and general welfare. And then it lists what those things are. Like it says that Congress has the right to establish a Navy, to establish an army. Well, why? I mean, it said provide for the common defense. Why didn't that cover it? Well, because they have to specifically say what constitutes defense. Well, it's the army, it's the Navy. They, they had to write it. Otherwise, you know, why didn't they just leave the rest of it blank if you could just do whatever you want? Now, some people would say, well, you know, if you have a strict interpretation of the Constitution, then the Air Force is unconstitutional. No, clearly the framers uh, intended by specifically saying you can maintain an army, army and maintain a navy. That was basically the only 
uh, elements of warfare that existed at the time. Clearly, there were no airplanes, so we had no air force uh, at the time the Constitution was written. But based on the intent of the framers, if airplanes existed, and they would have mentioned them in the Constitution. In fact, obviously, the Navy, there's planes in the Navy. The Air Force could just as easily be a division of the Navy instead of its own branch. So it would be ridiculous to say that we can't have an Air Force because they don't mention an Air Force in Article 1, Section 8. But what would be ridiculous is to say, well, you can provide for health insurance or health care under the General Welfare Clause. When there's nothing in Article 1, Section 8 that says that Congress can provide health care for American citizens. I mean, it's not like they didn't have doctors back then. They did. They had medicine. People got sick. Uh, you know, so they had hospitals. So Congress, obviously, or the, the founders who wrote the Constitution were well aware that people got sick and needed medical care and it cost money, yet they did not write anything into Article 1, Section 8 that would suggest that providing health care or insurance was considered part of the general welfare. I mean, look, they mentioned one of the things that's here is to establish post offices, right? Well, if you could simply say, well, a post office is part of the general welfare by having a post office, you're supporting the general welfare, right? If you could just say that, well, then why even bother to write it out? Why just say, you know, you, the Congress can can do whatever is in the general welfare because they had to write it out because if it didn't say that they could uh, establish a post office, they couldn't establish a post office. They just can't make something up and claim it's in the general welfare. So the general welfare refers to all those enumerated powers. And there's not many of them. There's like 17, 18 paragraphs in there. And, and so the only things that constitute the general welfare with respect to taxation is to follow through with those powers that are authorized there. And then at the, the last uh, paragraph of Article 1, Section 8, the necessary and proper clause. I mean, that's another part of the Constitution that has been distorted. It says Congress can make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, right? Well, I mean, yes, they can make laws to carry out these powers. They can't make all laws simply because they think they're necessary and proper. They have to be necessary and proper to do the things that Article 1, Section 8 authorizes them to do. But the other way that we know that the federal government can only do what the Constitution authorizes it to do is the Constitution itself tells us that. If you look at the Bill of Rights, which was ratified in conjunction with the Constitution, the first 10 amendments, the 10th Amendment describes the Constitution and how it was written. And I will read the 10th Amendment. It reads, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. That's clear as day. That basically says that the federal government can only do what it is authorized to do. The states can do anything as long as it's not prohibited. Now, if the um, general welfare clause means that Congress can do whatever it wants, if Congress you know, is all powerful, then what specifically was being reserved to the states or the people if the federal government can do whatever it wants? Clearly, the federal government can't do whatever it wants simply by labeling what it wants to be for the general welfare because that would render the entire constitution inconsistent with itself. So that's not what it means. So 
when the Supreme Court ratified this as a tax, it was an unconstitutional tax because the tax is not being levied for a constitutional purpose. It is being levied for a purpose that is outside the government's constitutional authority. Whether it's going to work or not is immaterial. The people who voted for it thought it was going to work. So it's not necessarily up to the judges to simply say, well, you know, you you thought it was going to work, but it doesn't work. So we're just going to backdoor, allow it to be constitutional. I mean, you, you can't separate the intent of the legislation from the letter of the legislation. You've got to look at the whole thing in its entirety. And what did Congress intend? And was its intention constitutional? And in this case, no. I mean, the government was clearly trying to circumvent the Constitution. In fact, I don't even think that that was the case. This was like a fallback position. This was just a way for the court to uphold something they knew was unconstitutional, but they wanted to uphold it because, you know, a lot of these justices don't like to strike stuff down. I mean, that's why a lot of this unconstitutional stuff was approved in the past, because the judges want to be liked, even though they're appointed for life. All these things the government wants to do that are unconstitutional are very popular because they give the people something for nothing. And a lot of the people want something for nothing. And the justices are seen as the bad people uh, because they, they, they stand in the way. So they want to be liked. And so they want the legislation to be approved. And so they found a way to justify it. But even though they said it was legal because it was a tax, uh, it's still illegal as a tax. And of course, there's another reason that the tax is illegal, and that's because it is not apportioned. It is a direct tax and it is not apportioned. You know, the only thing that the Constitution says twice is that direct taxes need to be apportioned. One place it says it is in Article 1, Section 9. It says, no capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumerated herein before directed to be taken. Now, what is a direct tax? A direct tax is a tax that is levied directly on the individual and paid directly to the government, as opposed to an indirect tax, which would be a sales tax, a tariff, a duty, an impost. These are taxes that are passed on through consumer goods or things like that. Now, a lot of people believe that the 16th Amendment changed that because the 16th Amendment was ratified after the Supreme Court rightly struck down the constitutionality of the income tax in the Pollock decision, and then that caused the uh, Constitution to be amended. Now, I don't want to get into that for the purpose of, uh, of this podcast. It would make it much too long. But let's just say, if you want to argue that the 16th Amendment said that an income tax as a direct tax did not have to be apportioned, okay, but it only applies to the income tax. It doesn't apply to any other direct taxes. If you read the 16th Amendment, it simply says Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states. It doesn't say that all direct taxes can be levied without apportionment. It simply carves out the income tax, the one direct tax that they're allowed to levy without regard to an apportionment. This Obamacare tax that you pay, this shared responsibility tax, is a direct tax that individuals pay directly to the government simply because they don't have health insurance. So it has to be apportioned, and it's unconstitutional for that reason also. But I don't want to get into that because the recent decision in Texas doesn't even get into that. I mean, nobody talks about this stuff anymore uh, because pretty much everybody believes that the requirement to apportion direct taxes 
was eliminated by the 16th Amendment when clearly it was not. Now, I don't even think it was eliminated with respect to income taxes. What I believe the 16th Amendment did is state that you have to tax income as an excise because that's the only way it could be exempt from the apportionment provisions. And so for the income tax to be constitutional, it has to be levied as an excise tax, and it's not. It's being levied as a direct tax, so the income tax in its current form is unconstitutional as well. But I don't want to get into that again. I want to focus on this decision by this Texas judge. So just to summarize again, the reason that the Affordable Care Act was held to be constitutional in a five to four decision was because it was simply a tax and that there was no actual requirement that anybody buy health insurance because they can simply pay this small tax. And if they paid the small tax, then they didn't have to buy the insurance. And so it was just a tax. Now, what happened with the recent uh, tax cut is the Republicans took away that tax. That shared responsibility payment is no longer part of the, the act, the Affordable Care Act. So they took away the tax. So if the act was constitutional because it was a tax, well, now it's no longer a tax. So the rationale for declaring it constitutional is gone. So that's why this judge had to look at it, you know, from a fresh perspective, because it's not a tax anymore, right? Because taxes raise revenue, right? If, if there's no revenue coming into the treasury, then it's not a tax. And the Affordable Care Act no longer generates any revenue because the shared responsibility uh, payment is now zero. But the requirement to buy Obamacare or the requirement that individuals buy insurance is still there. That wasn't repealed. The only thing that was repealed was the ability to pay the tax to get out of the requirement. But now you can't get out of the requirement by paying the tax because the tax no longer exists. So now everybody is required to buy insurance and there is no revenue going into the federal government. So there is no way that you can call this a tax when nobody pays anything to the government. So that is the reason that this judge struck down the individual mandate because now the individual mandate is simply mandating that people buy health insurance. The Supreme Court already said that that would be illegal. They only declared Obamacare constitutional because it wasn't doing that, because it was a tax. But now it's not a tax. Now Obamacare does exactly what the Supreme Court said was unconstitutional. And so he has no recourse other than to say it is unconstitutional based on what the Supreme Court has already ruled. Now, here's where you kind of get into a gray area. The Supreme Court correctly ruled that nobody is required to buy insurance because they can just pay the tax and not have to buy it. Now, there is no tax. So here is the question. If the government passes a law that requires you to do something, but there's no penalty for disobeying the law, is the law valid? Because there's no way to enforce a law that doesn't come with a penalty, either a fine or a jail sentence, because if you don't comply with this law, nothing will happen to you. Now, does that mean the law isn't a law? Well, you know, there are some people that can argue, and I think that was the case uh, of these plaintiffs was that, hey, it's a law and I want to abide by the law, even if there's no, you know, established penalty for disobeying it. 
I mean, I'm a law-abiding citizen, and I feel compelled out of a moral obligation to abide by a law. Well, here's an unconstitutional law. So I don't want to abide by unconstitutional law, and so I need somebody to declare it unconstitutional to, to relieve me of the moral obligation to abide by a law. But I'm not sure if a law has to have a penalty in order to be a valid law. I mean, I'm not sure what the legal precedent is. Can Congress pass a law and then not have a penalty for violating it? I mean, maybe they can. there can be some kind of regulatory body that can one day you know, come up with a penalty that might be enforceable. So as long as there's a law on the books, even if there isn't a, a penalty for disobeying it, I mean, it, it, there certainly could be one in the future. You don't know. I mean, I don't know if that would be considered ex post facto. Uh, but to the extent that this law is unconstitutional, even if there is no penalty, then I think it should be struck down. So in that respect, I think the judge was correct in that even though they haven't established the penalty for violating the law, because there is now a requirement to buy health insurance and there is no way out of it by paying a tax because they eliminated that part of it, well, then the individual mandate itself is unconstitutional. Now the question is, if the individual mandate is unconstitutional, is the entire Obamacare unconstitutional? And as far as I'm concerned, the answer is yes. And that is one of the reasons that the Supreme Court should have struck it down originally, because they recognize something that the legislature did not, that the penalty was not going to work, that the penalty tax was too low to compel behavior. But compelling behavior was exactly the reason for Obamacare. It was integral. And that's what this particular judge uh, focused on, that the justices of the Supreme Court ignored, that you can't have Obamacare without the individual mandate. It doesn't work. If you're going to force insurance companies to sell policies to everybody, regardless of health, then you need to force healthy people by law to buy insurance. They both have to exist at the same time. So if you take one away, the other doesn't work. So it's the linchpin, the individual mandate and the penalty are the linchpins for the entire Affordable Care Act. You take that away and it falls apart. So there's no way to strike down the individual mandate and leave the rest of Obamacare uh, there. You have to strike the whole thing down. And now if Congress wants to go back and pass it again the right way, if they want to pass it with a tax that's actually high enough to compel payment, then it would work, but then it would be unconstitutional. Because the Supreme Court only held it as constitutional because it doesn't work. But if it doesn't work, it's not constitutional because the whole thing falls apart. So there is no way that you can have this Affordable Care Act and abide by the Constitution. Right? It's impossible. Now, maybe you can stack the court with a bunch of judges who don't give a damn about the Constitution and will ratify it anyway. But I don't think the justices that are there now are going to do that. So, you know, legally... The Affordable Care Act is dead. And obviously, if the Affordable Care Act is dead, you know, if they try to come up with single payer socialized medicine, that should be even more unconstitutional uh, than than what we have now. But at least this justice had the guts uh, to lay out the case and to point out what should have been obvious uh, from the beginning that the plan doesn't work. And the Supreme Court simply tried to rationalize a basis upon which they held it constitutional which was that it wasn't going to work. But the fact that it wasn't going to work, to me, 
in and of itself kind of makes it unconstitutional because it's like a contract without a meeting of the minds. The people who voted for it had no idea what they were voting for. They believed that they were requiring people to buy insurance, but in fact, they weren't. And because it wasn't doing what Congress believed it was going to do, it wasn't going to achieve the objective of the law. And so the whole law falls apart on that basis. So we're going to see what happens now uh, if it does get up to a higher level, because I think the only argument that you can have is simply that, well, Congress is no longer requiring anybody to buy health insurance because they don't have a penalty. That's th th that would be the only basis. They would have to say, because it's not a tax anymore. You can't argue it's a tax. So what the government is going to have to say in order to argue that the Supreme Court is wrong or that this justice is wrong, and the tact it's going to have to take is they're going to have to say that since the requirement to buy health insurance no longer exists be because there is not a penalty. Yes, we have a law that forces Americans to buy insurance, but they don't really have to comply because we don't have a penalty. There's no, there's no negative repercussions to American citizens for not buying insurance. Therefore, we haven't actually forced them to do anything, even though we wrote a law that actually requires them to do it. And that's, you know, that's a difficult argument to make. But again, even if that's the case, it's still unconstitutional for a whole bunch of reasons, least of which there's nothing in the Constitution that says the government can have any role in, in this. But now the Supreme Court has another bite at the apple, and it's a different court. And now they can look at it with fresh eyes, with a better perspective. And so they, I think when they look at it again, they're going to uphold this. This is not some crazy, radical, judicial activist decision. It is the opposite of that. It is a judge actually applying the Constitution and applying what the Supreme Court already ruled about Obamacare to the current facts because the facts have changed, because the tax provision upon which the supposed constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act rests was knocked out. It's not there anymore. And so the Affordable Care Act is now doing exactly what the Supreme Court said would be unconstitutional if they did it. But the bigger issue for Republicans and, of course, the country is Republicans are now on record as saying and believing and they have adopted the Democratic position that insurance companies should not be allowed to discriminate based on pre-existing conditions, right? The Republicans want to uh, be a part of that free lunch, right? They have now committed to the American public that they want to make sure that those mean, evil insurance companies cannot deny coverage to you just because you happen to be sick, right? Just like saying that, you know, a fire insurance company shouldn't be able to deny you coverage just because your house is already burnt down. You should be able to buy the insurance uh, after the fact or an automobile company. I mean, you should be able to buy your automobile insurance after you already have an accident and then force the insurance company to repair your car, right? Basically, that's what they're saying. They're saying Americans have a right not to buy insurance, to keep all the money that they otherwise would have paid in premiums. And if they happen to get sick, then, you know, force the insurance company to take care of them and pay their medical bills, even though they didn't pay any premiums in the past while they were healthy, right? This is now what the Republicans are on record of supporting, and they can't go back from that, right? They can't backtrack. Well, since the Supreme Court is now saying that you cannot have uh, that requirement without the individual mandate, and the Republicans refuse to 
uh, sign on to the individual mandate because that mandate itself is unpopular, right? Nobody wants to pay the tax. Everybody wants to uh, just get the, uh, the free health insurance. That basically sets the foundation for uh, the Democrats to just go all in for socialized medicine, single payer, right? And hoping that the Supreme Court will validate that just the way they validated uh, Medicare or Medicaid or any of these other unconstitutional government programs, just relying on, you know, the necessary and proper clause or the uh, general welfare clause or something like that without looking to the commerce clause and mandating behavior, just another big government entitlement, just like Social Security or Medicare or anything else. Now the entitlement is going to be to free health care. And based on the precedents, I guess, that have already been established, unless we have a Supreme Court that's willing to go against that bad precedent, which would be the right thing to do, then we are going to get stuck with socialized medicine or single payer because we're now in a bind. And thanks to the Republicans that have put themselves in that bind, uh, there's no way to now argue for a bill that would both eliminate the ability of insurance companies to discriminate, but also not include any kind of penalty to force you to buy insurance. But again, the Supreme Court has already ruled that if the penalty is high enough to work, then it's unconstitutional. Remember, when I mentioned this initially, when the ruling came in, I said that eventually they would have to raise the penalty tax because the penalty tax was too low and the whole thing was going to collapse and that they would raise the tax to the point where it actually did compel people to buy insurance, which would actually render it unconstitutional. But I thought, you know what, what's the odds that somebody can successfully challenge it again and get it all the way back up to the Supreme Court? Because a lot of people wouldn't have understood the basis by which the Supreme Court held it as constitutional. They would have just said, hey, the Supreme Court said the tax is constitutional. They did only because it was too low to actually work. It was only constitutional because it didn't force you to buy insurance because the tax was so low. But if they actually raised the tax to a level that would force you to buy insurance, it would be unconstitutional. But I thought that, you know, what's the odds that it would actually get back up to the Supreme Court? But now it's got to because now by repealing uh, the individual mandate, the Republicans have changed the game because now it's a new law. And so now it has a, a better chance of moving up to the Supreme Court. Now, the Republicans should be glad because, remember, all these Republicans wanted to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And, and so now that this, it's being declared unconstitutional, they should be rejoicing because now the Supreme Court has done it for them. Now they don't have to worry about getting the votes to repeal it. It's already been repealed. But the problem now for Republicans is how do they vote for a replacement? How do they now uh, give the public what they've claimed they, they're in favor of? It is impossible to, to do that. And in fact, too, even when the Supreme Court, I mentioned, when, when they upheld the taxes as taxes, the government didn't even call. They called them penalties. The, the Congress obviously considered it a penalty and not a tax. It's just the Supreme Court decided to declare it a tax as opposed to a penalty. But when Congress ratified it, everybody voting for it believed it was a penalty, which is why I said that the Supreme Court should not separate the intent of the legislatures from the outcome of the legislation. Don't try to find a way to rationalize something as being constitutional if it was written to be a penalty, if the intent of the law was to compel behavior 
and you're saying that Congress has no authority to compel behavior, then strike down the law because obviously they're intending to break the Constitution and don't try to find a way uh, to allow the government to somehow circumvent the Constitution through some kind of unintended technicality uh, that you're able to exploit. The purpose of the Supreme Court is to protect Americans from government that is usurping power. The point of the Supreme Court is to enforce the law and to make sure that the government that has been given powers, that the government doesn't abuse those powers, that the government doesn't act outside the rules uh, and, and doesn't do things that it has not been empowered to do legally by the Constitution and clearly what the government set out to do with Obamacare was unconstitutional and the Supreme Court knew it and they should have struck it down for that basis. Hopefully, you know, when they do uh, come up with an even more unconstitutional uh, form of this, uh, you know, government's uh, intrusion uh, and their efforts to provide for some kind of single payer national health insurance, hopefully uh, the justices who are on the court at the time actually honor their oath to uh, support the Constitution and and will force the government to abide by it and maybe even overturn, overturn all of that bad precedent that we have been living with for a century almost, ever since the New Deal, when all sorts of unconstitutional things were ratified simply because a bunch of liberal justices believed that what the government was doing was good, even though it was unconstitutional. And so they substituted their own judgment for the law. And they decided to create this concept of a living, breathing constitution that means whatever the hell people want it to mean so that people who don't understand the benefits of limited government and capitalism can get away with transforming America into a country that was totally outside the intention of the framers of the Constitution because people believed that the framers didn't know what they were talking about. They were a bunch of fools. They didn't understand, you know, how good government is and how we need government. Believe me, they understood that. They understood how bad government was. That's why they wanted to, you know, to chain government, to bind government in the chains of the Constitution. The framers were far more knowledgeable and learned than a lot of people have given them credit for. People always think that they know more than people knew in the past. And maybe with respect to science and stuff like that, that's probably true. But when it comes to understanding government and freedom and, and how corrupt government can interfere with individual liberty and prosperity, in that case, we haven't gone forwards, we've gone backwards. You remember, the dirty little secret of the Affordable Care Act is the whole premise is to force by law young, healthy people who otherwise were not buying insurance to go out and buy health insurance. Because that was the only way that the insurance companies without the money to cover all the sick people who needed coverage who weren't buying it. I mean, that is, it's a transfer of wealth from young, healthy people to older, sicker people. And yeah, it's great for the older, sicker people because they're getting something for nothing, but it's a lousy deal for a bunch of young, healthy people that wanted to roll the dice and not buy insurance. Because after all, if you are young and healthy, the chances that you actually need the insurance are pretty slim. Now, I mean, the responsible thing to do is buy it anyway, certainly to buy a catastrophic plan, 
But the problem is, too, that the Affordable Care Act makes those type of plans illegal. What the Affordable Care Act did is mandate also that insurance coverage has to include all sorts of things. So that made it very difficult for young, healthy people to just buy a catastrophic plan because the insurance companies, by law, were not allowed to offer that type of coverage. They would have to offer all of this comprehensive coverage that covers a lot of things, which would mean that young people don't want to buy it. Because if they're forced to to buy coverage that they know they're not going to need, then why buy it? I mean, if you have a very inexpensive policy that really only kicks in in a, in a major emergency. You get cancer, you get hit by a car, fine. I mean, that would be very inexpensive because those things are very unlikely to happen. And so young, healthy people could afford to buy those type of catastrophic plans. And then if there was a catastrophe, they, they would be covered. And you know, if they had any kind of routine medical care, well, they would just pay for that out of pocket. But the whole concept of Obamacare was, hey, we're going to force everybody, even young, healthy people, to give all this money to insurance companies. And then we could use that windfall to provide health insurance for sick people who have pre-existing conditions. You know, and again, that's great for the sick people with pre-existing conditions. You're going to get their votes, but you're going to lose the votes of all the young people who don't want to pay for something they're not going to need. And so, you know, this forces that issue again out into the open, which is that there is no free lunch. There is no something for nothing. Somebody has to pay. And in the case of Obamacare, it's the young and the healthy that have to pay for the old and the sick, except they don't want to. And again, though, the Supreme Court has already said that is unconstitutional. You cannot force the young and healthy people to buy insurance that they don't want. You can tax them as long as the tax is really low and it's so low that it doesn't actually force them to buy insurance. You can throw a tax that doesn't force them to buy insurance. But if you want the tax to be high enough that it actually leaves them with no alternative but to buy insurance, then it's unconstitutional. But again, if the basis of the tax is to force you to do something, even if you don't end up doing it, the basis for the tax is unconstitutional. So the tax itself is unconstitutional. But the Republicans have already lost this argument by adopting the Democrats' position on discrimination against pre-existing conditions. Again, since I've already said that the Republicans are done in 2020, that they are going to lose the Senate and they're going to lose the White House, this simply increases the probability of single-payer socialized medicine and, in fact, increases the mandate that the Democrats believe they're going to have in 2021 to pass the legislation and enact it into law. And then we have to hope, and this is what I've been saying all along, our last stand, our last protection is going to rely on the Supreme Court, which is the only good thing potentially to come out of the out of the Trump presidency is a judiciary that may, in fact, do the right thing. And I've always said that the one branch of government that has disappointed me the most, it is the judicial branch, because they could have saved America from all this. All they had to do was enforce the Constitution. They didn't have to worry about re-election because they're appointed for life. All they had to do was have the guts to do what's right. Now, a lot of these people didn't know what was right, maybe, or a lot of these people were too blinded by their own socialist ideology that they somehow thought that the good of the country 
overshadow their duty as justices, that the ends justifies the means, that if it's a noble purpose, if this legislation is going to do good, well, then even though it's unconstitutional, we're going to ratify it anyway because we believe it's going to do good. That is what judicial activism is. The justices are not there to decide if they think legislation is going to be good or not. They're there to simply decide whether or not it is constitutional or not. And it's not about interpretation. A lot of people say that, oh, the Supreme Court is there to interpret the Constitution. No, they're not. The Constitution is written in plain English. The Constitution is not written in Chinese. It doesn't need to be interpreted. It needs to be enforced. You know, I think it's very uh, weird, too, or ironic that only the laws that apply to the government are supposedly up to interpretation, right? The laws that restrict private behavior, private conduct, they're not up to interpretation. You don't interpret the laws against theft, against murder, against extortion, against all, none of these, none of these laws are up for interpretation. They're, they're there. In fact, there is a legal principle called void for vagueness, meaning that if a law is not clear, right, if it is vague, well, then it is void because you have to be able to understand the law. It can't be up for interpretation. Otherwise, how do you obey it? Right. So if the Constitution really were up for interpretation, it would be vague and therefore it would be void for vagueness. So it is not. The Supreme Court doesn't interpret the Constitution. They enforce the Constitution. The only interpretation could be the facts. Do these facts, do they contradict the constitutional authority that the government has. That's where the interpretation is. It's not of the Constitution itself, but it is of the facts as those facts apply to the Constitution. And when you apply that standard to Obamacare, it fails every which way. There is absolutely no valid way that you could justify Obamacare. In fact, most of what the federal government does cannot be justified based on enforcing the Constitution. It can only be justified if you ignore the Constitution and you mislabel ignoring the Constitution as interpreting it. Thank you.